Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. This evening, I'm sat with Richard Bourne, Managing Director of Martins Property, a mixed-use £350 million private prop co focused predominantly in London and the South East. Now, Richard's established a career in development, whether for private family offices or listed PLC development companies. I'm very curious to hear what he makes the differences from those two. So, Richard, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for hosting me. So, let's get us started. How does Chapter 1 begin? Uh, Chapter 1, well, that starts, I suppose, with why I chose uh, to get into the property industry in the first place. I didn't have any family background in property. None of my relatives were involved at all in any form of real estate. So, uh, the reason I got into it and that I chose it was because I always loved making things and building things as a as a child, and um, I probably wasn't that good at it. So actually, I need to do more of the oversight and management piece, and um, be a bit more creative with that. So I decided to go into uh, Reading University, where I chose a BSc in land management, a traditional route for most people. But I actually did uh, what's called a three plus one course. So I signed up at the very early stage to do four years. And in that fourth year, you get a master's in planning and development as well. And I felt that would give me a really strong extra string to my bow, um, an extra extra qualification. So slightly different route. And that really stood me in good stead. Uh, I In my last year of that, you had to do a, uh, or, the, or the BSc element of it the last year, you had to do a course project. And that was a real life development scenario where you had to look at a building. I remember it very clearly. It was in Slough and uh, it came with a, really pretty ugly car park and we had to work out how to make it uh, look a bit smarter and earn some money and it was a great project and our chairman was a external advisor and he was actually the chairman of Don Lang Property and um, he really enjoyed what we delivered as a team and I was the chair of my particular project group and at the end of that uh, project he actually offered me a job straight out of uh, out of the bat and um, that was great for me because in my fourth year when I was doing the masters in planning and development uh, I was able to go in and work with John Lang Property on a part-time basis and also during the holidays and that gave me that extra sort of launch soft launch into I suppose the real world which is is business and uh, and a career and um, it all started from there. Well, to anyone who's who's listening, who might well have sort of joined the industry in the last years, they might not recognise the sort of the Lang um, sort of name. So, do you mind just introducing in terms of what what type of business it uh, it was and what you were involved in those early days? Yes, I mean John Lang Property was, or John Lang at the time was one of the biggest contractors, uh, a family-owned contractor. So it was one of those names that you'd see out there, like Bam or Kia. And, and formerly Carillion and, and those types. So uh, they had a property development arm and they also had a residential house building arm. And I worked for the commercial property development business. And it's it's a, effectively a trader developer. So we would buy sites to build out and create value. And we would let those and sell those at a, at a development profit. They weren't held uh, as, as an investment uh, for retention in a portfolio. Uh, and I learned a huge amount there. It was great. Now, you know I like to do a bit of research and 
ordinarily, I sort of, um, I get to sort of talk to people who might sort of got to know you from a bit later on in your your career. In, in many ways, the more substantial sort of chunks of your career. But I got to speak to someone who knew you from these very very earliest sort of days. That's worrying. And I must, I think, I think it's, I think it's quite quite remarkable that they even remember in terms of sort of someone who is at this stage of their career in terms of sort of a, a graduate. So I think it it goes a long way to say in terms of the impression you sort of left on them. And, they, uh, and I asked them what you, you were like in these very, very earliest days. And they said it was remarkable, the, the stage that Rich was at, because he was able to interact and behave as if he was a generally one of the team. And his ability really to sort of to, to really sort of uh, contribute was really was quite remarkable. What I wanted to ask was, given that start you've had, you, uh, undergrad, then masters, and then straight into a business like Lang. Um, what do you think that meant for you? Because it's you and I chatted about it offline, didn't we? Before it is unusual, isn't it? The tried and tested path is is Reading, Oxford Brooks to a Savills, a Jones Lang, a CBRE, and and you go do your your time and sort of tenure in in those types of businesses. And you didn't do that. Did you notice any differences, or did you? Uh, see how your career established itself in those early couple of years compared to your peers? Uh, it's, it's a valid point and well picked up, Nick. I think it is an unusual route. Uh, what normally happens at university is you have, I don't know whether it's still called, it was called the milk round, but uh, the big surveying practices like Savills, Knight Frank, Jones Land Sales, CBRE, you know, they, they would come around to the universities and they would present and encourage the graduate output to to go and interview with them because every year there was obviously a, an intake and they wanted to get the new graduates and of course that's I suppose the it's the common path and that's what a lot of people just think is is the way into property so my route was definitely unusual and I suppose the difference really is that when you go into a big practice you're with a huge team uh, you go into you know f- with some of these are, are multi multinational businesses and you are one of the a team and your first few well first few months certainly but but years is about rotation learning different elements of uh, of the business and networking getting to meet lots of different people and of course i was going into a smaller business i mean it's still a huge business but in terms of the team we were probably i think about 20 at the time and so the ed- added challenge that i had then was to really make sure I was known as well, and I could build my contact base. You know, property is a very, very social industry. It's much more about, well, it does help, you know what you're doing, but um, it also helps to know the right people as well. And so my, my first sort of stage was really balancing that. That was one of my big challenges was to make sure I was out and networking, understanding what's going on in the markets, understanding who does what. But I think the positive part of it was the contacts I'd made from university, they were all going off into their own respective uh, child surveying practices. But also, uh, I wouldn't underestimate the gravitas that comes with working client side. And that's one of the key things that people really aspire to do. So to get into that early was was quite different. And I felt very privileged to be able to be offered that. And, you know, I've been networking with CEOs, managing directors of businesses and senior level directors in child surveying practices. So I was able to get a really wide network group and but it was incumbent upon me i suppose was the difference because in child surveying practices you were given 
networking opportunities it was sort of forced upon you I suppose whereas I had to go and make that happen and I remember Friday afternoons at the Guinea in, in uh, just off Barclay Square <clears throat> was the was the key networking day or afternoon and yeah that was absolutely massively part of it it was actively encouraged by my by my leadership group. I think you make a really good point there is that when you're in in the larger sort of businesses you are networking often with your peers Richard Bourne of 22, 23 years old, probably didn't have a peer uh, or not many of them in other client-side development companies. So certainly your your peers are that, are that bit older and that bit more senior, aren't they, as well? So I think it is an interesting sort of where you've been sort of thrust into at this at this sort of early stage. Well, let's let's move on. Let's um let's chat about sort of what you were actually sort of involved in at at this sort of early stage. Because there's a change coming up, isn't there? Uh, and a, a change that's is associated with sort of things that are completely out of your control. Yeah, there is. And the first stage really was, you know, hugely exciting for me. It was, I was given a lot of responsibility. I mentioned, you know, it was a small team. So I was actively involved in running all the development appraisals, you know, understanding viability of options, looking at designs. Uh, it was a, it was a really kind of entrepreneurial and inspiring stage of my career because you, you know, you've got the big wide, wide eyes at that stage and you're trying to apply the theoretical side and slightly hands-on approach that you'd learned at university, but really putting that into practice in in business. And that's, it's quite scary, to be honest, at that, at that first early stage. You know, I, I remember feeling quite vulnerable and exposed. You know, you're making some some big calls that have multi-million pounds uh, impact, you know, decision-making. So, you know, you have to have some confidence, I suppose. And actually what was key at that point in time was, was a great team around me and some really inspirational leaders who who encouraged me who supported me and and gave me that confidence that actually you do know what you're doing and you can really push this on so it was it was a great phase and you know the trader developer part is a, is a model it's it's a it's still there there's still the trader developer model out there but it's becoming increasingly challenging i would say because more and more businesses property companies are uh, focused on development value add and so the traditional risky development play that was was home of the contractor developers and the developer traders uh, has, has been encroached on by by many others so it's not as easy I would say now um, uh, getting into that. And what about this change I, uh, that I sort of alluded to so two years into your time at, at Lang they're sold aren't they to to Kia? They are. Um, as someone at, at this stage, who's obviously extremely enamoured with their business, by your own description, what did this mean to you? Well, I think the first thing to say was, you know, I felt incredibly uh, vulnerable because, you know, you're at a stage of your career where you don't have uh, any experience. And, you know, I, I suppose my first impression was, well, that's that's me out. You know, you're going to get get booted. Why is the new company going to want someone with no experience? But experience has taught me as a result looking back now that was a sort of um a, a silly decision you shouldn't worry about things like that because actually you know I was probably the cheapest person on the payroll and uh you know I'd just come fresh out of some great training at Reading University and I was probably the first one down on the team sheet to come across just because of the of the budget so um uh, and that's that's true that's what happened but yes it was a it was a destabilizing period I would say it was I learned a lot from it you know, takeovers and mergers are challenging, you know, trying to merge two cultures of two different businesses. You know, there's always going to be, unfortunately, some collateral damage and fallout from it. And, you know, it disrupted the team. But, you know, I just stayed focused, head down. You know, I knew it was important for me 
at that stage to absorb, watch, learn and and give my all because I wanted to make sure I had a career that was moving forward, not stagnating or going backwards. So, you know, I put my hand up for anything at that point in time to get involved and and uh, show what I could add and, and, and offer in terms of support. Now, I'll, I'll do the easy bit. The similarities here are both Lang and Keir are both contractor um, developer models, aren't they? They are, yeah. And I think there was some uh, some common ground, particularly around the commercial lightness of the portfolio, quite a heavy sort of um, weighting towards industrial and log- logistics sort of work. What do they differ? What was the differences that you noticed early on? Um, I, I think uh, the differences really were, were Lang was very uh, entrepreneurial and much more focused on spec developments. It was probably higher up the risk curve in terms of how the assets and the projects we'd take on. And Kia was probably, it was a little more focused on trying to justify that sale for the first period, I think. Um, it's very difficult and it's very difficult when you're running those mergers. You know, you've got different objectives and different criteria, but they were probably a little more risk off. I would say we were looking for much more of the sort of OG notice pre-pack kind of development projects, which for me took out some of the fun, being honest. It was the, the part of the fun was finding projects where, you hadn't got a pre-let lined up and you were just going to manage the construction phase. You know, it was more about the value side of it, how you can add value and and be that creative side and show that actually you can take a piece of land or a derelict building and you can create something that really smart and really nice from it. And so I, I felt at that point in time, you know, I learned a huge amount, but probably it was time for me to find something else where I could I could take on a new challenge. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to bend this to my own sort of will here. We've we've gone through the the acceleration phase, haven't we? Sort of straight out the doors of university. Uh, this uh, sponsorship by uh, by by Langs in terms of, sort of the that accelerated sort of learning you've you've been on and encouraged to do with a very very shallow sort of peer group. Now it feels like we're moving into that next phase. I bang on all about about this consolidation phase, recognizing now that the pace of that learning has has slowed. And you're you're putting into practice what what you've just learned. Yeah. Why not Why not sit back and enjoy that? Why 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 consider? Because you you mentioned it sort of very quick. Yeah. I recognised I was slowing down, so I wanted to move. Why Why are those Why are those two so obvious bed partners? Well, you probably know me, Nick, but I, I'm I'm a super competitive person, so that's probably why. Um, I'm I'm a twin, and uh, I've always had a natural competitor alongside me. So, <laughs> um, if, if you slow down, you're going to get overtaken and beaten. So, I I suppose there's an there's an inner metal there that comes from that competitive piece, being a twin. But I was I was super hungry to be successful, you know, to grow my career. I didn't want to be stagnating. I knew that that stage, particularly, is a hugely important learning phase of your career you know when you're younger your brain is just so absorbent and ready to learn and um you know you haven't learned the bad tricks so uh, it's important not to get caught into an area where you might pick up bad habits or stagnate for me that was how i felt and yeah i really wanted to add value and and have fun you know it's it's really important we spend a lot of our time working and you know, you don't want to be working where you're sort of just churning and, and chugging the wheels. I wanted to go somewhere exciting and vibrant. And um, yeah, I was lucky enough that, that sort of that came over the hill fairly quickly for me. And um, uh, I was able to grab it with both hands. Tell us, what was, what was it that you, uh, you settled on? Well, I, I, I was very lucky in that one of my 
bosses actually at uh, John Lang had gone across to a, a family office um, at the time called Rowlandson Organisation. It's now RO Group. We uh, we rebranded very cleverly there, as you can see. Um, so uh, yeah, we we uh, I went across there at what probably 26 years old, 25, 26 years old, I should think, and was told, you know, we've got 40 million of cash to go and invest in development, and I want you to go and do it. Um, and there's no one else, you know, it's, it's you and you and me basically, and we'll bring in some project teams and support around you, but you know, that's, that's the opportunity, you know, and at 25, 26 years old, that was just, just the most amazing opportunity. And, you know, I learned a huge amount and that's, that sort of, I probably describe my career as a bit more like a racing driver. It's sort of hard on the throttle and then it's hard on the brakes, but only for a short period of time and then back on the throttle. So, um, I, that was a massive steep learning curve for me. Um, you know, Lang was Lang and Keir both were fantastic. We learned a huge amount, but this was about being on your own. And uh, and I say that loosely. I mean, clearly, there's a huge team around me. I say a huge, but there was a, there was a really good team around me. Uh, but I was the one leading the charge with that and uh, and finding the opportunities. It was it was brilliant. Now you just you described that with um uh, with obviously real real passion. And everyone's to listen, listen to this, can you will be able to tell that. What you didn't mention there was was any of the any reservation or or any recognition of the risk. Because we've gone your mm. as you said, you've rightly put it out, you're 26, and suddenly someone just handed you a bag full of 40 million quid. There's a risk, the risk here, this the wheels come off pretty quickly, don't they? <laughs> um uh, but you don't you don't you don't do you recognize that or is that is that sort of managed differently in your head you tell me no a hundred percent that's that's well picked up i can actually recall standing on the uh the rics headquarters balcony at uh st george's street and um and having that conversation not only with myself but actually my parents at the time i think it was my my rics um graduation ceremony but yeah, it was a, it was a huge gamble. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was it, I had serious reservations because I thought, you know, no one knows the Rowlandson organisation and RO Group. It's a very small small business. I mean, I say small. It was I think at the time about sixty to seventy million business, and you know, I had that decision to make as to whether I keep with the sort of corporate name people know about. And okay, maybe not now because Lang sadly has diminished slightly and somewhat from its from its heyday but Kia you know people know Kia people know Lang and you know was this the stage to go to continue growing the corporate ladder um you know bring in a land sec a, a British land and I and I had had interviews with other uh, larger businesses at that point in time and could have could have had could have had an opportunity actually to go in that direction but I felt that actually I would learn so much more by being hands-on in a smaller business with that opportunity to show what I can do with a blank sheet of paper almost and, and cash. And, you know, it, it was hugely risky. If I got it wrong, you know, A, I'd lose a, a family, a lot of money. But but B, actually, you know, my career could be, could have stagnated or even gone backwards. And I'm lucky that actually, you know, we went from, from strength to strength there. And, you know, that's a business that I have a huge amount of admiration for. Out of curiosity, You've worked for PLCs and then individuals. Do you do you behave differently when you're in that team? You, you, you talked then about sort of losing a family. You there's you can see those guys, right? If, if sort of a, a big PLC loses money on a deal, you don't you don't typically see the shareholders 
the individuals, right? So do, do, do you behave differently? Does that does that weigh on your mind at all? Well, it's pretty awkward to lose uh, lose a few billion quid for anybody, to be honest. Eh? But um, <laughs> but um, no, I th- it does. It does. You know, without a doubt, you know, you know that this is. It's not about the individuals. It's about intergenerational. You know, you know that actually what you're doing has an impact, necess- you know, directly on current and future generations of that family. And yeah, honestly, you don't want to cock it up. It's uh, it's pretty pretty awkward if you get it wrong. But you know that that's that's also their risk. You know, if they didn't like that, they would they would do it themselves and and not bring in people. And that's when you start to have to learn to trust yourself. And you know, you're bought in for a reason. Uh, you do have a skill set. You do have things to offer. And at the end of the day, you can't get everything right. I think that's an important thing. You know, we we've all everybody's made mistakes. I've made mistakes. You, you try and learn from those and make sure that you try and limit those in future. But you know, at the at the end of the day, the more you go up the risk curve, the more risk there is, and therefore that's accepted. That's why you take higher returns in development, for example, because there's no guarantee that's going to come through, and so you want a higher return for the risk you're taking. So I learned that quite quite quickly. But I would say, going back to your original question, is it different? Um, subtly, yes, yes, it is, because you're investing someone's money. In some of the corporates, you know, there's some, there's some great people, great businesses, and I'm not here to uh, to challenge or deride any other particular types of company. But but some are driven by targets to deploy cash and just spend it. And I always say there's a differential between spending and investing. And that's something that you really think about very closely when it comes to a family business. Well, back, to, back on my uh, my research now, uh, and this is linked to that, that early sort of comments, about someone who's potentially sort of much more mature but um, uh, beyond their years. And someone described you as having, even at a very early age, this ability to cut through the noise of a problem and apply common sense to the solutions. It's often solutions that this person has said could easily have just been over-intellectualised. And, and Richard typically came up with a much simpler, much more sort of pragmatic sort of a, uh, approach. Do you recognise that trait? I'd love to know. I mean, I, this is a complete surprise to me. These are all being dropped on me uh, completely cold. So <laughs> I'd love to know who said this. Um, it's very kind. I, yeah, I suppose, I, I suppose I do. You know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a great intellectual. I just, I try and keep things simple. You know, if you keep things simple, there's less to go wrong. At the end of the day, it is about starting with something, adding value to something and hopefully making it worth more at the end, whether you're investing or you're developing. And sometimes people do, I think, kind of try and apply all this sort of science and legal system and, and you know, you get drawn up into process rather than looking at what the end objective is. And sometimes you've got to try and cut through that and think, well, what, where do we need to get to and how can we get there without butting our heads against the wall uh, and, and getting hurt? You know, you want to try and avoid it. So sometimes you make those calls where, you you bypass that or you might say actually look this this is expensive in the short term this looks like a really bad call but do you know what if we don't get this now we are completely scuppered in terms of getting to our end point and we can't get there so you make those calls quickly because also the the thing I learned very early on was was the interest clock you know you you start and you're borrowing money the longer you take the more that's going to cost and that's eating into your profit so 
I, it was always that dilemma and, and using just common sense about, well, okay, if this takes another 12 months, it's going to cost this. Well, we, we might as well just cut to the chase and get on with it now. So I suppose I suppose I do recognise it. I still try and make sure we do that. I've, I've probably brought a bit more rigour and process into the way I do things now, just as you go to bigger businesses and where systems maybe need to be put in where there aren't, you know, you have to bring that in. But ultimately, you're still going to try and bring a bit of entrepreneur and, and uh, cut through problems. But yeah, I'm, I'm a problem solver at heart. So if I open up my research book once more, I've got another another scribbled quote here. Um, and it says that Richard is, is not afraid to make tough decisions, but he did so with a very high degree of emotional intelligence. What would you say has been the hardest decision or the hardest dilemma you faced at this point in your career? I mean, there's there's been a few, to be honest, and, and they probably all link into sort of crisis management, I suppose. You know, the, the more more recently working back, because I suppose we've had the COVID pandemic and that's been a real challenge and before that, uh, the financial crisis. But I suppose the biggest one that that I had to deal with without much experience at the time, I suppose, was a, a building blowing up, actually, um, which doesn't happen to many people, fortunately, but it certainly happened to me. Um, and I, I think it's probably well known in the uh, in the industry because uh, you couldn't write this. <laughs> um so if, you, if you're interested, I'll, I'll give you a quick summary of what happened um, and what well, I learned. Can't, you can't leave us on building, <laughs> can you? <laughs> well, I, I, I just joined RO in 2005. And um, prior to that, I'd been working on buying this big 90,000 square foot office building in Hemel Hempstead, which came with a large amount of land. And I thought, this is really interesting. It's really cheap on a capital value per square foot basis. You know, it's a great amount of uh, site area. And I thought... You know, it'd be hard not to add value to it, to be honest. So anyway, I, I, I'd gone ahead and we didn't quite get it over the line before I left. And I just sensed that Keir were going to pull out of it. I wasn't convinced that the the managing director at the time was uh, was completely on board, although he was telling me he was. So I, I dropped the seller, the vendor, a, a line and just said, look, I gut feel is they're going to pull this. If you give me two weeks, I will buy it in my new company. <laughs> And that was quite a big statement to make because that would have been the biggest investment that uh, RO Group had ever made in its history at the time and, and on a pretty risky asset, to be honest with you. So I was very lucky that they supported me. And in February 2005, I bought this building called Hemel One. And cutting a long story short, in nine months, we'd bought it, refurbished it. Uh, I'd let it. I actually wrote a letter to the chairman of Kodak because they were about to make a decision to take another building. I said, you can't afford to make that decision. This is what it will cost you over five years. Uh, please come and see it. And the next day she uh, she picked up the phone and arranged to come and see me that afternoon. So it was a, it was amazing, again, just sort of learning how to be, just be confident, not cocky, but be confident. And, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. That was another lesson I learned from that. So I was hugely successful. And uh, I in nine months, we'd had it done and I'd had it under offer to sell. And, I remember showing my chairman around, uh, who's one of the, he's the senior, obviously, shareholder at RO Group. And he said, um, he said, God, you're, you're in danger of starting uh, your career at RO with a bang. Little did he know what the, what he was about to uh, to find. So, yeah, we'd had it under offer on, it's due to exchange on a Friday. I remember this, I mean, like, like yesterday. And unfortunately, the chaps who were, were signing the documents were, I think, at a lunch on the Friday afternoon. So we didn't get it signed. And we had a meeting lined up at 10 o'clock on Monday morning to, uh, with the lawyers and all the signatories to get the 
the sale completed and it would have been the biggest the biggest sale and the biggest profit in the company history let alone on one asset it was it was huge for the business but at i think 601 on sunday morning bonspoil oil depot decided to blow up and um uh, hemel one was approximately i think well it's within 100 meters of the epicenter of the explosion so um the building was uh, was a little bit lighter after that and um, a few less windows and various bits and pieces. But I mean, it was, it was pretty catastrophic. So um, I suppose the lessons from it then were, you know, firstly, dealing with disappointment because, yeah, I watched my bonus fly across to the Holland. I think it was uh, it was in a big black cloud of smoke. But, you know, you, you then got to get resilient. You've got to work out, well, this isn't going to solve itself and you can't just leave it like that. And um the first stage was was kind of what I call the emergency phase. It was picking up the phone to to all the all the customers, our tenants, and uh, reassuring them that we're going to rebuild it and you know we're going to do it within a certain time period. I remember having to promise to Kodak that they would be back in that building within twelve months, otherwise they were going to sign a new lease elsewhere. So I said one hundred percent, and I shook hands on it, having absolutely no idea how the hell I was going to do it. Um, and uh, I went back and told the team that's what we're doing. They said, you've got to be joking. This is a sort of 18 month project. Um, I said, well, we, we've got to cut it by six months. Let's do it. And uh, I had a, a brilliant team. We didn't get the whole building done, but we got their floor done and they were in within 12 months. And I remember a, a lovely uh, speech by the chairman of, I think it was, well, it might not be the chairman, but anyway, senior director of Kodak, who just said it was all about uh, partnership, collaboration, and teamwork and that's what uh, what did it so it was lovely to be able to do that but the consolidation phase then was once we got the building safe uh, we recovered I remember there was a it was Christmas time there was a huge amount of cash in some of the drawers from Christmas parties and things so um, without, without dropping myself in it we did actually break the police barrier and uh, managed to get in uh, guys as contractors uh, to go and recover bits and pieces and essential equipment for the for our customers and um then it was sort of this that was the first phase and then the second phase was about obviously rebuilding and 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 sort of helping our our tenants in in the interim and um and then it was about the recovery phase and the recovery phase was was then about when when you when you something like that happens you can recover through insurance the cost of the building what you can't recover is the lost value and we obviously lost our sale so I led a QC and a legal team to sue the oil companies for who were responsible. Um, and uh, that was about five years of my life. Uh, we settled it in 2010 um, through negotiation out of court settlement that I was leading. And uh, so we'd ended up actually then with the building put back, the, the tenants back in place. We'd relet it to new customers, actually. Uh, we'd recovered the money from the oil companies, and then we actually sold it as significantly more than we were due to sell it. So it's an example of don't look to the big picture too early. I think if I'd worried about the implications and the, the enormity of the situation at the time, I think that would have been pretty overwhelming. But breaking it down into those three kind of stages and just keeping focused on those stages enabled me to and, and and the business to really stay focused on actually achieving a successful outcome and it shows that with tenacity uh with a little bit of courage as well you know that, that was a big call by by the team and by the shareholder group that was a you know i'm still eternally grateful for them supporting that and that's a pretty mad call to uh to, to rebuild a building right next to a an oil depot that's blown up but um it shows that um perseverance and, and resilience pays off so, after the chairman has rightly said, you know, your career has started with a bang, at RO. You know, 
what's um, sort of after sort of 2010 when this is all sort of wrapped up? What happens after this? Well, we'd, we'd had the, the GFC, the, the global financial crisis, and I took over the investment business as well as the development business. Learned a huge amount there, not just on the development side, but what what also other factors you have to think about when you think about investing in in real estate, different sectors, different geographies, and so on. And I continued doing that. We had a great great strategy uh, around some two to five million pounds lot sizes, a little bit more for some. And I, I kept doing that until twenty fifteen. 2017, sorry, when I decided that um, I needed a new challenge. And so go on, don't leave on, uh, on that cliff edge. What is what's the next challenge? <laughs> well, I, I, I had an approach to join um, a company called Martin's Properties, which is another, another family-owned, family-run business, but it was much bigger. Uh, we went from a, broadly the company, I think RO was about 90 million when I left. And uh, I joined a business that was sort of 300... 320 million, I think, uh, but with a with a really really interesting portfolio. I hadn't done a huge amount of retail at the time, and this was a prime King's Road portfolio, uh, residential retail, but also leisure office with a huge ambition to grow. You know, I was I was inspired when I met the chairman Tom Martin, who who got very similar growth ambitions to me, and we we just I think we talked for about two hours and we couldn't stop talking, so we decided it was it was a, it was an alignment of interests. So I. I I left RO and joined them in 2017. Excellent. Tell us about the early days then of, uh, of Martins. Well, I joined Martins as a, as a property director. They actually were looking for separate investment directors and development directors. And I said, what do you want two for? I, c- I, can, I can help you with both of those. So I, I joined as the newly formed property director. And um, it was really eye-opening. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful business, lovely family great growth ambitions. But what I found when I joined, I suppose, was they needed a bit more structure and a bit more process. Uh, for example, I turned up on on day one and I asked, I think, four members of the team, I said, can I get your your tenancy schedule so I can see you know, what the portfolio looks like, what have we got coming up? And I got given four different spreadsheets with four different answers. I thought, right, we <laughs> we have got a problem. We need, we need to start getting, uh, getting on top of process here. So um, I suppose my first job, first job there was looking at process. It was looking at skill gap analysis. I had to, you had to look at the team and, and sadly there were some casualties. Uh, someone said, I think you've got some feedback from someone previously who said he's not scared to make some tough decisions. I suppose that was probably an example of that. But I felt we needed uh, to grow. We needed a really, really strong team and there's some great people, but it just needed a bit of bit of livening up uh, and some process. So uh, the first year I, I rebranded the business, uh, still called Martin's Properties. Again, I, you can see my creativity in, in branding and naming there. But uh, we went from a, a brown colour to a blue colour and a different logo. And I, I'd, I'd like to think it's certainly smart now. I think it looks, it's, it's representative of who we are. We're a high high-achieving, uh, high-performing team. That's what I want around. I think I want to enjoy it, um, be really professional. So we've got, got a great new team, new processes and systems, um, tightened up on some of our governance and um, and rebranded. And, and in that period, I was very lucky that the, the, the chairman, or the, actually the CEO, uh, Tom, uh, who's a shareholder, just said, look, you've, you've done a huge amount in 12 months. Uh, it's time for me to hand over the reins. So I became the first non-family MD of the business uh, after a year back in 2018. Which is remarkable, but your career's had a couple of remarkable sort of milestones, hasn't it? Out of curiosity, what was the steepest learning curve? This latest, 
property director to to MD, or previously when you were handed the let's say the the reins to being head of investment at RO. God, that's a really good question. Uh, they're both very different. You know, I th- I'd say they're all very steep learning curves. You know, you, you both of them had to go in with an approach to listen, to learn, to have that confidence, uh, to trust instincts. But I suppose that the, the difference with the role from property director to CEO, managing director uh, versus the other one is it's much more about people. You know, people management happens at all stages without doubt. Um, and, you know, I, I had to learn how to manage an investment team when I took that over. But, um, you know, when you're you're running the business, you're responsible for strategy, you're responsible for day to day running, you're responsible for line management, you're responsible for getting the right caliber of candidates into the business. You know, it, it's it's people management. You, if you try and take on too much uh, and do it yourself, you're going to collapse. So the art of delegation became the key learning point for me, really, and surrounding myself with really good people. And, I, and I'm delighted to say that's what I've got. And I, I get real satisfaction now about helping them learn, helping them develop, using some of my experience that I've learned to to help guide uh, and help, you know, I suppose influence decisions. It probably is influencing decisions, but, you know, you want to lead people to make their own calls but within a, within a framework that gives them some comfort that that's what we're trying to achieve and the kind of boundaries around what we can do. So, um, yeah, the diff- different learning curves, both very steep. So given now sort of your, your portfolio of employers, private, PLC, entrepreneurial, sort of family-owned, what would you say are the most enjoyable aspects of Martins? Oh, there's lots of them. Um, I think... I mean, the first first thing is the team. You know, it's a small team. Everyone there has a direct impact and input into the performance of the business. So there's no hiding, you know, and it, it really energizes people. You know, we've got a really, really high quality portfolio. And, and we've also got this mix of Martin's investment holdings, Martin's development holdings and Martin's financial holdings. So we've got lots of different areas. There's always something different every day. It's not just a straightforward, singular approach. So it's always dynamic. It's always entrepreneurial. Uh, we've got a really, really high caliber board. That's That was important to me when I joined the business, actually. I just wanted to be learning from them um, and make sure the governance was really strong so that we have an agreed strategy and we, we, we deliver and follow on that. But it's, it's a buzzy place. You know, it's ambitious. It's focused on growth. Uh, the family are involved and that makes it a really nice atmosphere. You know, it's not... It's, I always describe to people when I'm interviewing, actually, uh, interviewing people to come in, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice balance between a kind of a friendly family environment, but equally a very well-controlled PLC corporate structure. And it's quite a rare, a rare setup in that regard. So, you know, I, I love it there. We've, we've currently got a huge amount of cash. We've just, just been sort of getting ourselves really in a, in a prime position to take advantage of what we consider to be the next phase of the cycle and the next phase of the market. Um, so we're cash funded, we make quick decisions um, and we've got great autonomy. So it's brilliant. And, and the, the new piece I've just brought in is, which is not really new, but um, ESG, that's a, an area that's now very much on our, on our strategy and our values. And we want to look at what we can do for this generation, but also the next generation and the, the wider next generation. So it's considering our environmental social impact on everything we do. Uh, and it's, I'm excited to see what we can, uh, we can deliver the next, the next five to seven years, whatever that looks like. 
Well, on, on that sort of um, segue then, let me ask you a couple of sort of quick fire sort of questions before we wrap up. Given your career, you've you've been in senior leaderships or executives of leadership now for, for easily last sort of 10, sort of 12 years. What's next to learn? <laughs> oh, there's always things to learn. Uh, life always throws surprises in without doubt. Um, you know, COVID and uh, Brexit and GFC, you know, there's always something. Did I think that I was going to get once in a lifetime event happen to me three or four times? No, I didn't. So COVID was a, was a massive learning piece for me. And I suppose that's taught me about trusting remote working. Um, I still believe massively in the office. We still have three days in the office and two days remote working because that's the piece that brings us that, that teamwork, particularly a small team. It's, it's so vitally important. You get the collaboration, you get the training, you get the socializing. It's the glue that brings the team together. But, uh, but it's enabled us to not be five days a week, which is where we were. Um, so I, I learned a lot from that. You're, you're just, what, what, there's nothing I know that I'm going to be learning, but I can guarantee that I will be, I suppose, is, uh, is the summary of that. It's not something I'm setting out to do, but I'm learning something every day. Last question then, before we wrap up, Richard. We talked about, I asked you at the very start, about what was driving you at the start. And you, know, you gave us a very good analogy in terms of it um, um, uh, as a twin, does that still, does that same competitive nature, does that still drive you today or has that changed? Uh, it, no, it definitely drives me. Um, I'm still driven. I still want to make a difference to to, to me, to others, uh, to society if I can and drive performance. You know, I, I am a competitive person. I'm a driven person. I suppose I'm working a little bit with leadership coaches. They're very important when you get to this stage. It's quite a lonely position as CEO, I can tell you. Um, you know, you, you, you don't really have anyone else to turn to. So very important to surround yourself with um, with support. And um, you know, Martin's a fantastic at that. But the one thing I suppose the next phase for me is, is what else can I do uh, outside of the business arena? And a few years back, uh, 2010, actually, a lot, lot happened in 2010, as it turns out. <laughs> it's a key, key year. But um, I, I had a, an approach. I just got my pilot's license and I had an approach from somebody who uh, was through a friend of mine who said, look, I, I've, got, I've got double kidney transplant coming up. I've got 90% scarring on kidney on both my kidneys and not a great outlook. And I'm just trying to tick off my bucket list. And one of the things I've always wanted to do is go up in a, in a light aircraft and fly, you know, are you able to help me? And it was just one of those sort of uh, pinch yourself moments because uh, this chap turned up and he was, he was ash and gray. He wasn't looking very well, I had to say. And uh, I just said, look, you know, we're going to go up and where would you like to go? We're going to take off. You need to just probably be quiet for the first couple of minutes because I have a lot of talk on the radio and I have quite a bit to do. Um, but after that, you know, you can fly. You know, I'm going to hand you the controls and we'll head off down to the south coast and we'll come around and, and we'll land. And, and you know, this, we, anyway, without getting into detail, we, we landed and this chat was, was in tears. And actually, so was I. It was one of those sort of uh, moments that you, you never forget. And I'm delighted to say he actually, he, he did survive. And um, about five years ago, he took me up flying because he's got his own pilot's license now. So it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty amazing thing to be able to do. And I just thought this happened a couple of times, actually. And I just thought, God, we've all got an opportunity to give our time or skills or hobbies or anything like that to, to really make a difference. And this chap, Chris, who I took flying, just said, you know, honestly, you have no idea what that flight gave me in terms of the fight that I needed. You know, he said, I remember just when I was struggling with pain and things, I was remembered this flight. I just remembered I was thinking I was flying. 
and I always it gave me that fight to go and get my own pilot's license. And it, it, it's who knows um, whether that that flight really made that big difference or not. But irrespective, it's something that we we can all do. So I set up a charity called um, Abling International, and it's uh, it's a community interest company set up really with a with a vision to inspire people all over the world um, to, to kind of spread happiness and, and give it to those that need it most. So really for people who are either terminally ill or under charitable care. And it's just a simple platform, a bit like a, a bit like Tinder or um, Airbnb, where um, you basically people can easily donate their time as an enabler or their skills and hobbies. And then those who are terminally ill or under charitable care can access from their side and request activities. And you can search by date, time, activity and location. Um, and match people up so that it's all free it's it's a non non-chargeable service but it's it just struck me that actually the the reward i got and the benefit that this this chat chris got as well should be available to to many more people so i'm hopeful that this is the next phase about to launch the market and um i hope we're gonna be able to uh yeah make a difference to people well, Richard, on a really positive note, I've got to, uh, we've got to wrap it up there. So thank you uh, once more for, for joining me. Um, and I've no doubt that our, our, our audience will have thoroughly enjoyed listening to this. Absolute pleasure. I hope, uh, hope it's been interesting. And thank you for your, uh, your invite and time to, to interview me.